It's a long text that we have before us, uh, 67 verses. In fact, it seems to be one of the longest narrative portions of Scripture in the Bible. And as I worked my way through it, there was three sort of main phrases that uh, rung in my head. The first one was, this is my Father's world. It's a wonderful description of God's ways in the world. A second uh, theme that ran through my head was the phrase, when faith needs feet. And uh, there are times in our lives when we have to act on the faith that we have. And so uh, we see that in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, and we see that certainly in this particular passage. And then thirdly, uh, and I don't think because it's a Valentine's Day only that I thought of this, but there's a divine love story that is woven through the uh, verses of this particular chapter, Genesis chapter 24. And so I want us to think about uh, why is it that God would spend so much time recounting to us a specific incident in Abraham's life. As I say, it's one of the longest narrative portions that I can find in the Bible describing a single event. And God spends 67 verses um, dealing with this event. I think one of the things that's helpful for us as we come to try and understand Scripture and try and make sense of the Bible is to understand the big picture of the Bible. And when we read our Bibles, to always have in the back of our mind, well, what is the big storyline of the Bible? Well, the big storyline of the Bible has really two movements, or four movements. It starts with creation, and that's the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. And it ends with the consummation, or recreation, which is Genesis chapter, or Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And in between, we have two things worked out. We have the rebellion of man against God and his creation, and that's in Genesis chapter 3. And then from Genesis chapter 4 all the way to Revelation chapter 20, we have the story of redemption. That is the big story of the Bible, how God takes us from creation of the world to new heavens and new earth at the end of this age. And so all of the Bible is part of that unfolding story. And so when we come to this particular text, we have to ask ourselves, well, where does this particular text fit in that large story? Or how does it fit in that large story? And I think we will see that it fits in that large story fairly clearly once we keep it in mind. Now you might say, well, what does that have to do with Genesis 24? Well, Genesis 24 is part of the redemption plan of God in his big story. And God's plan now, his promise to Abraham, is now pinned on a single human being. Not just single in the sense of one, but single in the sense of an unmarried son. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would number as the stars of the heavens or as the sand on the seashore. And now Abraham is 140 years old, and he has a single unmarried son who is to be the recipient of the promise of God. Secondly, as I work through this chapter, not only is it a chapter that reminds us of how this story fits into God's big story, but it's also a narrative that helps me understand our part in this story. That yes, God has a big story that is unfolding every day in front of our eyes, but we also have a significant part to play in God's story. We don't always see the parts that our lives have in this big story, but they do have a place to play. None of us is a meaningless person in God's creation. And you can see the way that people work out their stories in God's big story by maybe reading the book of Ruth. 
or going back and reading the book of Esther. And you see there how God guides and directs the events of people's lives so that their stories fits into the bigger reality of his story. As I think about these verses as well, what these verses help me understand is how I walk with God. And they summarize, I think, very clearly or give us an illustration very clearly of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. They're verses that we quote all the time, but if we want an illustration of how these verses work out, we can turn to Genesis 24. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all that you do, and he will show you which path to take. And so Genesis 24 illustrates the, those two verses. We're not robots in this world. We are given minds, and we are given hearts, and we are given the ability to choose one thing over another. And God expects us to walk with him in this world, to submit our ways to his ways, to submit our will to his will. And as we do, he will guide us and direct us. And so as with those things in mind, I want to turn to this story of uh, Genesis 24 and God's giving a wife for Abraham's son, Isaac. The first thing that I thought of, and these were the verses that uh, Barry read for us this morning, are God's unexpected delays or unexplained delays. Here we are, 65 years and counting. Will God keep his word? Will God honor his promise to Abraham? You see, when we come to Genesis chapter 24, we have a couple serious problems. The first problem is Abraham is getting old. The Bible describes it very clearly where it says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. Well, how old was Abraham now? He was 140 years old, give or take a year. The reality is he will live to be 175 years old, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't know how many days he's going to live. Already 140 is a lot of years to have lived. And so Abraham is old. And he's wondering, is the promise of God going to be worked out? The second issue that we have, and I've already mentioned it, is that his only son, Isaac, is 40 years old. And Isaac is still unmarried. He is single. He is the only recipient of the promise of God so far to Abraham. So do you see the problem that this text is addressing? It's the problem with the pace of God in life. God doesn't seem to be in a hurry. Abraham had walked with God now some 65 years. 65 years earlier, God had said to Abraham, I want you to come out of the land of Haran, to leave your country, to leave your kindred, to leave your family, and I want you to come into the land of Canaan, a land that I'm going to give you. And I'm also going to bless you not only with a land, but I'm going to bless you with descendants who are going to be like the stars of the heaven above, or like the sands on the seashore. If you've been following along with us, you'll recall how Abraham waited 25 years for half of that promise to begin to be realized. And that was in the birth of his son, Isaac. But now here we are, 
40 years after that, and he still has no descendants. He's got a piece of land, but he has no descendant. His wife has died, and so now how is he going to find a wife for Isaac? It's fascinating if you come to this text. This is not a text about eight principles on finding a wife. I'm surprised how many people have gone to this text and have used the principles here and tried to apply them to others on this is the steps that you follow in order to find a wife. I don't believe that is at all what is being said in this text. But Abraham has a dilemma. God has told him he can't leave the land of Canaan. He's not to go back to the land that he came from. And the second dilemma is that his son cannot take a wife from the people of Canaan. That he, his son needs to take a wife from his family and from his relatives. It's fascinating as we think this through that while it's not about finding a wife, it is about telling us that marriage matters. That the covenant of God is worked out in marriage and in through the offspring that are produced from a marriage. Secondly, it does tell us that a wrong-headed marriage can mean disaster for a covenant child of God. And so we do see those two principles worked out here. But as we come now to Abraham, you notice something about Abraham. He's now 140 years old, and he is a different man. He is a man that has been growing in his faith. He is still trusting God in his old age, which is such an encouraging thing for those of us who have been walking with God, but maybe still have a lot of years ahead of us. Secondly, he has seen the hand of God already worked out in his life by providing a son, and as we saw last week, by providing the first little piece of the land. But the future remains uncharted. He has this promise. Now he has to act. And I suspect that the news that he received at the end of verse 22, when he had come back sometime after having offered uh, Isaac as a sacrifice, the news that he had a family and that his brother's family was growing might have stimulated his thinking on, this is where I can find a wife for my son. But we see his faith becoming surer. We see his confidence in God now is stronger and it's more certain. This is not unlike the test of Genesis 22. Will God provide? There Abraham started out with his son, and his son asked him, where is the animal for a sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide. And we realized how God provided. And so now here we have Abraham, as he's commissioning his ser servant to go and find a wife from his relatives. And his wife says to him, well, what if, my, what if the, the, they won't send their daughter with me back to you? And he says, don't worry. The angel of the Lord will go ahead of you. In other words, his faith is stronger even than it was when he was about to offer his son Isaac. He knew that God would provide. He had learned that God sees the dilemmas of his life. And now with great confidence and great certainty, he trusted that God would provide a wife for his son Isaac. Not just any wife. Not a wife from the peoples around him, but a wife from among his kindred and his countrymen it's fascinating to me that he leaves the task up to his servant the oldest manager in his family and with clarity and confidence he commissions his servant telling him the lord god of heaven and earth the god most high who took me from my father's house and from my land and from my kindred 
The Lord God who has been with me for 65 years now, he will be with you as you fulfill this vow to me. I hope you see the growth in Abraham's life. He's a different man now than he was when he started out. He's not taking matters into his own hands here. He's not trying to help God out. He's simply acting in faith. He's simply acting on the promise that God has given him that he will have descendants that are as numerous as the stars in the heaven. He's putting feet to his faith. The second thing that we see in this text, and this is probably the longest portion of what I want to say today, and it's the longest chunk of scripture, and we're only going to read parts of it. And I would really encourage you, it takes nine minutes to find nine minutes today. Sit down with this text and read the whole thing from start to finish, maybe even out loud, and allow the truths of God's word to soak into your heart. But the second sort of thing that I want to um, highlight here is God's unmistakable providence in the scene and the unseen. I, I want us to think about this in light of the fact that this is my father's world. You see, as I read through this chapter again and again and again, what I began to realize, and it's become so clear to me, is they describe God's way in our world and our way in the world before God. It's a wonderful snapshot of how God works in our world, how God works in our lives, and how we walk with God and respond to God as responsible human beings. God is at work in every detail of this world and of our lives. But at the same time, our decisions have a very real impact on how God works himself, works his plan out in this world. In this account, we see how God works out his will through his, Abraham's commission to his servant, through his servant's prayer and obedience to Abraham, through Laban and his father's response to the servant's mission, and to Rachel's response to the question, will you go with this man? All the way, God was leading, but all the way, human beings were reacting and responding with their free wills to how God was leading and directing in this world. This is how providence works. And I want to leave us with a kind of recipe for providence. I know this might sound a little bit corny, but it's a recipe for providence cake, so to put it. It's a way for us to understand how providence works, maybe in a kind of corny way. You take the promise of God, you mix in circumstances and prayer, and then you walk in his ways, and God will lead you in straight paths. It's a wonderful recipe of how we interact with this biblical notion of the providence of God. Just to help us out, I have referred to this definition again and again uh, in my time here. It's a definition of providence by uh, Dr. James Packer. And this is how he defines providence. He says, providence is normally defined as the unceasing activity of the creator, whereby in overflowing bounty and goodwill, he upholds his creatures in ordered existence, guides and governs all events and circumstances, and free acts of angels and of men, and directs everything to its appointed goal for his own glory. That's an incredible biblical summary 
of the way God works in this world and the way God works with us in this world. As we come to these verses then from chapter uh, 24, verse 10 to verse 61, we cover a lot of ground. First of all, in verse 10, there's a huge amount of ground that's covered in verse 10. Verse 10 simply tells us, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts for his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Now you need to understand, the Bible doesn't give us all the details of life, but that verse describes probably about 17 or 18 days and a journey of about 750 kilometers. We simply realize that he was in Canaan, and all of a sudden, he's at the city of Nahor. The details of those 750 kilometers and those 17 days are not necessary for understanding the story. But what I want us to really see now is how the providence of God works itself out through the free acts of human beings. The first is simply the interaction of prayer and providence. Does prayer matter? Does prayer make a difference? If God is working all things out, does prayer make a difference? Well, look at verses 11 to 14. His master, the servant, made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by this spring of water, and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. That's an uh, amazing little snapshot of how prayer and providence work together. Here's this servant of Abraham, commissioned by Abraham, being sent out by Abraham with a task to accomplish. He wants to know God's leading in his life. We know that God does lead us in our life. And nevertheless, he prays sincerely before the Lord, show me the way. I want you to understand, loved ones, that your prayers matter. Your prayers make a difference in this world. Prayers, the, the providence of God does not make praying useless. Rather, it actually makes prayers useful and meaningful. The fact that God does look after every event in this world gives our prayers purpose and meaning and effectuous because God can actually accomplish the things that we pray to him about. There is no conflict between the divine will of God worked out in providence and our human heart's desire and prayer before God. And so the servant prays. This is his plan of attack for how he might find God's will for his life. And at the heart of his test of this young lady who he hopes will appear is an issue of character. And her character will be demonstrated in her hospitality towards him. So prayer and providence matter. The second thing we see is, the, is serendipity and providence. The, the way that, 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 that God's providence just kind of 
works itself out in our lives. So notice then in verses 15 to 21, starting with verse 15, he says, before he had finished speaking. So he was praying to the Lord. He was working this out. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethel, the son of Milcal, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jug on her shoulder. Now I suspect that Abraham's servant for 17 days had been working out in his head, God, how are you going to reveal this woman to me? God, how am I going to find this woman, God? How, are, how am I supposed to identify this girl? Of all the girls that probably live in the city of Nahor, we realize that he got there in the evening when the women come out to water. So there's multiple women that are going to be there. And so he's thinking of a way that, that God might reveal his will to him. And before he had finished speaking, a woman approached the well. Now, you and I know that it's Rebecca. But at the time when the women came, he didn't know that. The servant didn't understand yet that this was God's leading and direction to him. And I can be sure, though, that probably when this woman, who we know is Rachel, first presented himself, inside, he was just leaping with joy but outside he was just watching to see if this was the girl because certainly there was a girl that had come out and secondly this girl not only said to him listen can I give you some water and oh by the way it looks like your camels need some water I'll water them as well but you've got to jump ahead to verse 21 and read his response as this is unfolding because the servant, it simply says, the man gazed at her in silence. Listen to this. To learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. I think this is really something important for us to understand as God's providence unfolds before us. Do you see the check here? You see, this servant could have easily concluded right away that this girl that had come out uh, to water, uh, to, to get water from the well, and who offered to give him water and water his camels, he could have easily concluded that she's the one before his whole prayer had been answered. He could have jumped to the conclusion that, yeah, this is the right girl, but he didn't know who she was yet. And so he, he simply watched as this unraveled before him and gazed with, I think, incredible enthusiasm at it. But he could have selected the wrong woman. There could have been another woman from another family who had offered to give him water and to water his, uh, his camels. He could have presumed that just because this woman had met most of his requirements that this was God's answer to his prayers. You see, we get into trouble when we jump to conclusions too quickly at the unfolding of God's providence. You see, in the context of of, of this story, you might be praying for a spouse. You might be praying that God will send someone your way, and you might have a list of one or two things that, that are important to you, and on that list you might say, and, and they need to be a Christian. And so you start looking for a spouse, and you might go on dating sites, or, or you might run across somebody, and, and all of a sudden you see so many things on your list that, that, that match up, and you think, yeah, this is the one. Except for the fact that you find out they're not a believer. 
and, and, and then, then you change your mind and you say, well, it really doesn't matter. It, it really is not important. Most of the things on my list have been met. And, and you start a relationship and all of a sudden you find yourselves in conflict with actually the will of God. And so we have to be very careful that as we walk with God and as we set things out before God, that we allow his providence to unfold fully before we act on a partial unveiling of his providence. So we, we, we have the prayer and providence. We have this serendipity. Here's this girl. I was going to start singing that song. Here she comes just walking down the street. But uh, here comes this girl towards the well. She does everything that he had prayed for, but he doesn't yet know whose family she belongs for belongs to. So then we have the confirmation of providence, and we see that in verses 22 to 27. Obviously, I'm not reading these verses, but he then comes up to her and he says, please, tell me whose daughter you are. And only when his prayer is fully answered, when Rebecca finally says, well, my name is Rebecca, and this is my family, this is who I belong to. And I, I'm sure that that the words of Abraham must have exploded in his head at this point. God's angel will guide you. And it's only when he sees the full outworking of the providence of God in leading him to Rebekah, the daughter of, of, of Abraham's uh, brother, when he finally worships the Lord. And I, I love this response of the servant to the Lord as he recognizes God's providence. In verse 26 and verse 27, the man bowed his head and he worshiped the Lord. I think we just need to stop right there for a moment. Do you do that when, when things work out? Or do you just assume it was chance? Or it was coincidence? Or do you even forget that you had prayed for such a thing? Oh, this, this man didn't forget that at all. He was looking for God's guidance. And when all of a sudden it looked like the providence of God was being fulfilled. He bows down and he worships the Lord. And then he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forgotten his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in this way to the house of my master's kinsman. Again, do you not see the clear illustration of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. I was thinking, and I, I know this is off topic, and it's a random thought. But in verse 22, as he's talking to Rachel, he says to her, please tell me whose daughter you are, and is there room in your father's house? And as my mind often does with just phrases, I hear them in songs, it even happens with scripture, and you know what my head thought of right away? I thought of John chapter 14. As Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's, he's in his last evening on this earth as Jesus, the human being. He's talking to his disciples. He's encouraging them. He's, he's wanting them to know that things are not at a loss, that things are all right, and they're troubled, and they're worried. And what does he say to them? 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And there was just something in my heart that rejoiced in the provision of God. That God has a place for us. God has a place for anyone who will put their trust in him. God's, God's accommodations are not limited. God's heaven is not got a set number of people that we know. That anyone who comes to God and say, God, you have lodging for me. God has a room for you. And he invites us to come. The, the way that we come to him, though, is through Christ, who is the, the way, the truth, and the life. But if you have not yet found a home with God, he has a room for you. Put your trust in Christ. And here, Christ's invitation to you, in my Father's house are many rooms. It's a wonderful picture of God's provision for us. And so we have, though, then this confirmation of providence. But it doesn't end there, loved ones. It's just so much in this text that the, the next point is, is simply the testing of providence. I don't know if you ever test providence in your life. There's, there's so many steps in this text that are so helpful for us. But there's the test of providence from verses 33 to 39. And the test of providence is in telling other people how God has led you that people conclude that God is real. But there's also help in these verses because as we tell other people how God has led us, we wait for their confirmation of that leading. You see, Laban came out to Abraham and he said, listen, let's just have a meal. And Abraham said, no, no, I, I need to tell you about my journey. I need to tell you how I've got to this point. I want you to hear my story. And so Laban says to him, well, tell us then, what do you have to say? You see, I really am more and more convinced that we will be helped, helped a great deal in this life if we let this picture settle in our hearts. When seeking God's will, when, when, when realizing God's providence in our life, do we leave room for others to discern whether or not we're reading providence correctly. This is really important. And, and, and you see this here so wonderfully displayed. Abraham's servant, in the recounting of his journey, doesn't try and manipulate the facts to suit his case. He doesn't try and manipulate Laban and his father in particular to seeing it his way. He simply lays out as fully and completely as he can how God has led and directed him. He doesn't use the heavy hand of saying, God told me, which I think is a spiritual form of abuse sometimes. Rather, he says, let me tell you how I think God has led me. He lays it out before them, and he wants to know how they interpret God's leading in his life. You see, it's fascinating to me that he is willing to have his read of the circumstances, his interpretation of God's providence checked by Laban and his father. He's still open to the fact that maybe God 
is not leading in this circumstances. Even though all things look like God has, he's still willing to see, is this how you see God's leading? Because he says to them at the end, now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me so that I may know whether to go to the right or to the left. And so the servant lays out before Laban and, and his father Beth, Bethel. He lays out to them how God has led them. He tells them about Abraham's greatness and about his riches. He tells them about Abraham's loss of his wife, Sarah. He tells them of his son, Isaac, the son born of the promise. He tells them how Isaac needs a, a wife. He tells them about his master's charge to him. He tells them about his journey. He tells them about his prayer. He tells them about this amazing providence of God, how their daughter happened to the wind, who came to the well and offered to give him water and offered to, 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 to water his camels as well. He lays it all on the line. He's willing to receive their input. And I think sometimes that's almost like Mordecai and, and Esther as they're trying to figure out how they approach the king. And remember what Mordecai says to Esther? Who knows? whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a, time, such a time as this. Sometimes we need to test providence. And I thought to myself, oh, how we could learn from such a careful walk with God. How as leaders we can learn to be honest with, with the facts that we want to present and honest with the, the things that we believe God is saying, the whole picture, but allow that or submit that then to everyone else to say, yes, I see God's leading, or no, I don't see God's leading in that. He was willing to have the providence of God tested in his life. The next thing that we see about providence is submission to providence. In verses 50 to 61, you have the household's response to the servant's story. I'm intrigued by their response. Laban and his father see the hand of God in the servants recounting. They see it clearly. Here, is, here are they, though, reacting. This is God working in their lives in such a way that they are still free to make whatever decision they want. But God is ordering the lives of his people to fit into his big story. And so they say, the thing has come from the Lord. That is the word that you want to hear, loved ones. When you lay before a good friend or a, a group of people what your plans are, you believe that God has led you. You believe that God has directed you. You don't want to go out on a limb, though, and just assume. And, and so what you would love to hear, and so often we do hear it, is the thing has come from the Lord. Oh, what a confirmation in our hearts. And then they say to him, behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. They agreed with the servant's assessment of the facts. Now, I mentioned submission to providence for a couple reasons. One is they submit to the providence of God, Laban and his father. They say, yeah, God is doing this. But secondly, submission to the providence of God is sometimes very, very difficult. We can read this and, and let it just flow off of our lips without even thinking this through a minute. But 
think it through for a minute. Here's a man that they've only known for a couple hours. Oh, they know about Abraham. They, 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 they know Abraham. He's, he's, their, he's, he's, he's Laban's father's brother. But they listen to this story of providence, and they say, here is Rebecca, taken. That is astounding to me. I, I, can't, I, I can't imagine what went through their hearts and what, what God must have done in their hearts for them to be willing to let their daughter go with this strange man to a faraway country to be a wife of somebody that she has never met. You see, loved ones, submitting to the providence of God is not always easy. Just ask some of the parents that you might know in our church family who have, a, have, have listened to their kids tell of God's call in their life to go to a mission field somewhere. And I said, yeah, what you're saying is of God, go with my blessing. The words come out of our mouth so easily, but the battle in our heart to submit to the providence of God is sometimes strong and difficult. Even in the light of the clear leading of God, you think it is easy to submit to providence? You see, we can quickly read over this text and say, oh, providence is an easy thing. No, it's not. How we need to have the insight and courage, though, not only to say this thing is from the Lord, but then to submit our wills and our ways to the thing that is from the Lord. And then we have the success of providence. There's still one more thing for God to, to do. You see how, how God's providence is being worked out through Abraham, through his servant, through Laban and his father, uh, and, and that God is not twisting anybody's arm. He's not forcing anybody's decision, but God's will is being worked out. So then we finally have the success of providence in verse 61. What about Rebecca? Again, you got to think about this from the perspective of a young girl, probably in her mid-teens, maybe a little bit older. Think about how strange it must have been for her. She too had only known this man for hours. This man was now saying that she was to be the wife of his master's son. That she needed to come with him in the morning and go with him to a faraway land, 17 days away, 750 kilometers away, and come with him. Would Rebecca see the hand of God? And so they called Rebecca to them. And they said, will you go with this man? One Hebrew word, I will go. And in fact, it's fascinating, you know, that word can also be translated, I want to go. It's an incredible thing how, how her heart is one that is willing to submit to God. Her call is very similar to Abraham's 65 years ago. Leave your country, leave your household, leave your kin, and go to a land that God is calling you I marvel at, at the, the way of God in our world. I marvel at the, the way that God works his will out 
without coercing us. It, it's, it's amazing to me. You see, loved ones, how God's big story, his story of redemption, is worked out in our stories, the story of Laban and his dad and of the servant and of Abraham and of Rebecca. Marvel at the ways of people in the world. Learn to walk before him. Learn to submit your ways to him that he might direct your path. Well, two more really quick points. Well, they might not be quick, but I want you to think through this. Think about God's gift, God's unexpected gift. And to do that, I want you to come back for a moment and think about Abraham's servant. He's an unnamed servant. I, I know some people believe he's Eliezer. I'm not convinced of that. At least in this text, he's unnamed. He is the chief manager, it seems, of all that Abraham owns. And it's significant how much rests on the shoulders of this unnamed servant. And to realize how in our life and in God's world, God uses ordinary, no-name sorts of people to work good for you and for me. You see, the God of the Bible is not dependent on all-stars. The God of the Bible is not dependent on big names and big flashy um, titles and job descriptions. And I thank the Lord, and you should thank the Lord, for the no-name people that God brings into your life, into your business, into your neighborhood, who serve you with such faithfulness and commitment as this servant served Abraham. Be encouraged if you are in the background. Be encouraged if you are seemingly nameless. Know that God has created all of us for good works as part of his big plan to fit into his big hand. He's prepared them beforehand that we might walk in them. You might be the parents of a, of a child that you are raising up as God's steward. And that child one day will be used by God in ways that just blow your mind. You might be one who prays often in secret. Nobody sees, nobody knows how long, how often, how fervently for others. Never underestimate your part in God's big story either. Only God knows the role that you play in his divine love story. His servant was amazing. He, he was discerning. He was wise. He was careful not to get a hold of God. He was prayerful. His life was one of worship. You, we see him three times worshiping the Lord. He was devoted to Abraham. He was committed to his oath. He was a model servant. He was a gift of God to Abraham. I am so thankful for the unexpected gifts that God has given me throughout the course of my life. Finally, God's sovereign and fatherly care, the big picture and my picture. This is the last point. This is a divine love story. After all, it's Valentine's Day. It's probably good to talk about a divine love story. Meanwhile, back at Bear Leroy, 
the place Hagar actually had named when the angel of the Lord had found her and sent her back to Sarah, Isaac was coming home. And on this particular day, he had gone out into the field to meditate or to pray or to think. This is the only time this word is used in all of the Bible. It's a fairly rare word, and we're not really sure what it means. It, it, we, we, those who know these things think, yeah, it means meditate or pray or contemplate. I wonder, what was Isaac thinking through out in this field? What was he praying about? What is he contemplating on? What was he meditating on? I wonder if he was thinking about his mother. There's evidence about that, that maybe that's what he was thinking about, how he missed his mom. Maybe he was thinking about the journey of Abraham's, his father's servant, and wondering, boy, he's been gone a long time. It's been over a month. I haven't seen hiding or hair of him. Has he been successful? He's working this over in his head. He's praying about it. And then just like the servant who, before he had finished praying, a woman appears. It's like as he's meditating, he just lifts up his head and he looks, and there's this caravan coming towards him. It's a remarkable love story, but maybe not the love story that you're thinking about in your head. See, what's at stake here? What's the, the big love story here is Isaac getting is getting a wife. Well, everything rests on that. See, this is really God's love story towards his son, Christ. See, because everything depends. The, the whole promise of God, the whole kingdom of God depends on Isaac getting a wife. If Isaac didn't get a wife, there would be no descendant of Abraham. There would be no kingdom of God on earth. There would be no marriage. There would be no children. There would be no you and I. But what God is doing here is he's beginning to get a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. Do you remember the, the vision of John, the ba or John the, the, the apostle? In Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. See, this is, a, this is an incredible love story. This is God at work. Getting a bride for his son, Christ. A little bit later, we read in Revelation 21, Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried, away, carried me away by the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God. You see the love story here? The love story is God getting a bride. For his son. This is a story about God's love for his son, Jesus Christ. But there's another story on display here. It's God's love for Isaac. What amazes me when you when you read the last few verses, and, and you know what, we've already gone a little bit later, so we can read, read a couple of them. The servant said to Rachel, this is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his tent, of, into the tent of Sarah, his mother. He took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. 
So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Do you see what's going on here? There's this big story that God is unfolding. The story about God getting a bride for his son, Christ. But there's the story of Isaac. God's aware of his personal circumstances. He sees that Isaac is lonely. His father is aged. He doesn't have any brothers. His mother has died. It's been three years since she died. He's still grieving. In fact, he's living in her tent with no siblings. So Isaac took Rebekah, and he was comforted after his mother's death. We can read these verses so quickly. But you see what's going on here is that God is aware of the big story, but he's aware of Isaac's need. Of all that's going on in this world that God has created, he sees what's going on in Isaac's heart. He sees his need of comfort. He sees his need of love. He never loses his concern for Isaac. And that's the same for you and I. We may feel like we're, we're nothing in this world. We may feel like nobody cares for us, but God knows your circumstances. God knows your needs. God loves you. And even though God is bringing to conclusion his big story, he never loses sight of you in that big story. It's a wonderful love story of God with those he has created. God is the God not only of the big picture, but of individual pictures. He is the God of the big plan as well as the individual need. Don't think for a moment that if you trust in God, you will be lost in a sea of humanity. So I can't explain the delays of God, but I do know that God is involved in all the details of our world and my life. I know that God surrounds me with people who help me. I know that God gives me a role to play in his story. And in the midst of his big story, he continues to be intimately involved in my story. Father, we come before you today, and I'm thankful for this text. It really is quite an amazing 67 verses. It has so much to teach us about you and about your way in this world and about your way in our lives. It's illustrative of every day of our life. It's illustrative of every moment of our life. It's illustrative of every decision of our life. Father, may we return to this story again and again and be reminded of your big story, but also be reminded of the importance of our place in 2021 in your story. Our lives have meaning. Our decisions make a difference. Help us to be men and women who walk in your ways, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.